350 people decided to be grateful this week. I wonder if the traffic might feel a bit better than it did last week. I wonder if the people who serve us in restaurants and shops might have a better week. I wonder if the trains might not feel as delayed as they did. Talking to myself, that one. <laughs> if you see me on a train, call me on it, right? It'll be delayed. I think gratitude's going to change the world. Not even talking about gratitude this morning. Talking about further. It's been a great series so far, right? Wendy telling us to let go of ourselves. F.A. challenging us on what direction we're going further in. Pete talking about there being more, the Father's love. Nikki pressing us towards the race to finish, to follow Jesus well. And then last week, the three testimonies from people within this church who are actively living out there further in so many brilliant and interesting ways. So challenging and so inspiring. Um, I believe that following Jesus is a call to going further. I don't think there's any other way around it. And folks, I've got, to re- I've got to remind myself quite a lot. That's what being a Christian is. It's following Jesus. That's what we're here to do. We're here to learn how to follow Jesus, figure out how to do that well. And I think Jesus was always pushing people further. Always. You only have to look at the way he spoke, the way he acted, the people he hung out with, the stuff he did. Everything was a push to the people who saw him for them to go further. I really believe that. And I want to focus on one of the ways he did that this morning. Just one of the ways through one of the things that happens in the New Testament. Um, But before that, I need to tell you about um, how we do bedtime stories in my house. Is that okay? I have a child, so it's not just me and my wife telling each other bedtime stories. There is a boy in this. That's him. Now, I I talk about my boy a lot, but um, I've never put a picture up before, so I need to tell you. So earlier this week, I said to him, buddy, I'm going to be doing a talk at church on Sunday, and I want to tell them how we do bedtime stories. Is that okay? And I do that every time I do anything. I write and I blog and I do all sorts of stuff. And I often talk about my son, but um, I never do it without his permission, even at five. I think it's really important he knows he has agency in his own story. So I give him that. And if he says no to me, then I don't tell the story. But he said yes to me. Um, and he often, he often does, to be fair. And, uh, and, and this time he said, yeah, daddy, that's absolutely fine. Tell the story. Then a few minutes later, he sort of looked at me and he went, daddy, it would probably help this time if I got up on the stage with you, just so they know who I am. So we negotiated down to the picture. I'm not one for putting gifts on kids. I don't, I don't have any need for my son to ever be on a platform. But I'll tell you what, he's arguing with me at five, so good luck, all of you. <laughs> wow. So, uh, so how do we do bedtime stories? Well, um, basically, my son's never been a sleeper. I think I've probably shared this before. He's never loved to sleep. We've always found sleep a struggle, and particularly in the transitions. So like when you go from uh, kind of like crib to cot, cot to little bed, kind of little bed to what we call big boy bed, and, and all of those things you hope are going to be the thing that unlocks it. Parents, am I right? Like all of those. It's like, don't worry, we've spent the money on the bed. He'll sleep now, and of course, he never sleeps now. I know, you're next. And, uh, and what happens is that, um, and, and he's never done it, and one of the big reasons for that is that um, he just loves his mum right? And that, he's a smart kid because his mom's brilliant, right? So he's a really smart, wise boy who wants to eke out every second of every day with his brilliant mom. But that means that he wouldn't ever let me put him to bed. And so this became exhausting for my wife, Christina, right? Because every night, seven nights a week, she was having to do bedtime. And my wife gives better hugs than I do, apparently. Apparently, she has softer hands than I do, but my hands are soft. I will tell you, these are soft. These have not worked a day in their lives. <laughs> But there's one area in which I actually outdo mummy at bedtime, and that's I can make up stories. 
And it sort of came from desperation, almost like pleading with him, like, I'll do anything, just let me do a bedtime, let me do what we call nanites. Let me do nanites. Just please, just let me do nanites so mommy can have a rest. And I said, look, if you let me do nanites, I'll make up a story about anything you want. Anything. He looks at me and he goes, well, not a story I know. No, not a story you know. I will make up a story about anything you want. And I said, okay, daddy, I'll have a Paw Patrol story. So that night, I told him this Paw Patrol story, completely made up, using the same characters, and he let me do nanites. And this happened for a little while. And suddenly, because I could make up these stories, I could do one night a week. And then after a couple of months, my stories aren't that good, as you're discovering. <laughs> after a couple of weeks, he said to me, Daddy, I can't choose. I don't know whether I want Paw Patrol tonight or, or Avengers. And I'm like, well, this is another opportunity. I'm like, my son, do not choose between the two. I will bring the two together. <laughs> And so I started to make up these stories where, like, you know, firefighting dogs would meet the Hulk, and they're, like, having these adventures together. And then, of course, once you're in it, you're in it. So then I'm, like, I'm starting to think about story arc. Can I bring back last week's story into this week's story? Can I do? And, of course, it was getting better and better, and so I started to be allowed to do two nights a week. And then just a few months ago, he looked at me and he said, Daddy, can you put me in the story? And so now, three nights a week, I tell a story about crime-fighting ninja, meeting Lego undersea explorers, meeting superheroes, meeting dogs in police hats, and every story features a five-year-old boy with blonde hair and a daddy called Matt. And I think we're doing so. Thank you, Phil. You know the, the hardship of how that was for me. <laughs> Thank you. Everyone else, you're welcome. And, and in these moments, I think we're doing something really interesting and really profound. And I think we're doing something that Jesus invites us to do. I think Jesus invites us to retell his story and to find new and interesting characters to bring into it and then to find our place within it. And I think that's what Jesus did when he told stories. Jesus used stories incredibly to push people to new places. He used stories to push people's imaginations far beyond where they wanted to go or where they were willing to go. Every time Jesus tells a story, something is going on underneath. Every time he says, let me tell you about the one, you know that there is something going on there that is going to push and prod and move the people who heard it into somewhere new and further than they've ever been before. And it's uncomfortable, and it was really uncomfortable at the time. But I think if we don't engage with Jesus' stories, aware that they're meant to push us and prod us and push us further, then they become nothing more than bedtime tales we tell our kids. And these stories are not nanite stories. These are further stories. So we're going to look at one of them this morning. Is that all right? We're going to go to Luke chapter 10. We're starting at verse 25. It's a really well-known story if you grew up in the church. In fact, I wouldn't, I'm going to say this morning, even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably know about this story. You know what this story is in some way, shape, or form. But I want us, like I often do, I want us to really engage with this story like we're hearing it for the first time this morning. Don't allow our familiarity to rob us of the scandal of what Jesus was doing when he sat down and told this story. Because if we do that, we won't go further. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what's written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This morning, I want us to take another look at the story. You see, what can happen is we learn this story when we're small, or we hear a preach on it, or we listen to a podcast, or read a book, and we think, well, I know what that's about. I know the Good Samaritan. I know what everything represents. I know what Jesus was trying to say, and I know what the point of that story is. But I think when we do that, we stop ourselves going further. We stop ourselves being able to engage with the Bible beyond that one time we heard that thing. I've told you guys before, the the Bible is a phenomenal collection of stuff. Stories and songs and letters and poems and history and all sorts of incredible things. And, And I read it every day. And I haven't always read it every day, but I can tell you the difference between when I do and when I don't, when I did and when I didn't, is like night and day, okay? So, so I'm unapologetic about telling you how important I think the daily study of the Bible is. Taking out your Bible, subscribing to that app, finding a way to get it off your shelf, whatever it is, I am passionate about believers and followers of Jesus reading their Bible, okay? Worship music, amazing. Podcasts, blogs, articles, books, going for a walk in the hills, all incredible. But this, this, this is a gift. And if we're ignoring it, if we're not spending time with it, then I think we're missing out big time. Now, I've told you about my 13-step plan, right? I'm repeating this morning, but I'm telling you about my 13-step plan. If you're struggling this morning to engage with the Bible and you don't know where to start, I have this really simple plan. Right? It just is the simplest way, I think, to start reading your Bible. And if you really struggle before and you've tried everything and the app didn't work and the phone just was a nag and you've tried it all but it's too dull and you're, you can't do it, this is the plan. Okay? Read the book of Matthew, read the book of Mark, read the book of Luke, read the book of John. Then read the book of Matthew, read the book of Mark, read the book of Luke, read the book of John. Then read the book of Matthew, read the book of Mark, read the book of Luke, read the book of John. And then when you've done those 12 steps... Find someone who's read the Bible more than you and ask them what they think you should read next. It might be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It might be the letters. It might be the Psalms. They might say, go back to the beginning and start again. I don't know what they're going to say because you have to do the first 12, right? When I first shared that about a year ago, it was was amazing. It's one of my favorite things ever from preaching this church because people now sidle up to me and go, I'm on step seven. I feel like I'm in a spy film. I'll have dads walk up to me in kids' church and be like, Step 11 this week. It really freaks new people out. They think I'm running like a betting syndicate in the kids' church. 
really freaks them out. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Find someone you trust. There are lots of people in this church who know their Bible. Find someone you trust and ask them, where shall I go next? I promise you, if you've struggled to engage with the Bible, it might just be the thing that unlocks it for you like it did for me. So if that's all you hear today, you can zone out now and I'll see you in about 15, 20 minutes. Because if you start reading your Bible this week because of that, I would be a very, very happy man. That would be enough for me to talk about this morning. Two things before we go any further. I want to acknowledge two books that have been really helpful in my um, kind of preparing for this morning. Uh, the first is called The Parables by Brad Young. I think they're going to come up so you can see the, you can see the covers as well. Uh, there's The Parables, uh, Jewish Tradition and Christian Interpretation by Brad Young. Uh, that book came out about 10, 15 years ago. It's an absolutely brilliant, brilliant study book. And then the other one is called Short Stories by Jesus by um, Amy Jill Levine. That's quite a recent book. Absolutely brilliant. She just takes a parable in each chapter and she basically just blows apart anything you've ever heard about it before and says, go again. I'm not recommending these books. This is not a book recommendation show. I'm not recommending them. What I'm saying is if you were to go and read those, you're going to understand why I'm talking about what I'm talking about this morning. These aren't my insights. These books have really inspired me and helped me in my understanding of going further. So it's important to acknowledge that. Um, And I have to say in particular, Short Stories by Jesus is just a phenomenal look at the parables. Phenomenal. And the second thing is this. Uh, I've said it before when I talk about parables, but I always try to remember three things when it comes to parables. Um, They were told in a real place, and they were told at a real time, and they were told to real people. These weren't written down a fortnight ago. They didn't appear in the 60s. These are ancient stories that were spoken aloud to an audience of people who heard them. And, And when we try and rip the parables from that, I think, first of all, we do them a great disservice, but I think more than that, we actually do ourselves a disservice because we, we lose all this beauty of what Jesus was doing as a master storyteller. And when we kind of lift these parables and we go, so that means for us in 2019, I think we have to be really careful that we don't leave all the good stuff behind and kind of just grab the, the meaning of the story as we understand it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'm going to talk a little about that uh, this morning as well. So... We're going to look at some of the people in this story and uh, why they're there. So let's start with the, the priest and the Levite. Okay, so we, we're told the story that the man gets attacked. And there's a priest and Levite going down the road. And they see him and they cross and they, they continue on their way. And, and it's important to know that priests and Levites were basically important religious figures of the day. It was an inherited position. Okay, you couldn't apply to become a priest or a Levite. It was in your bloodline. So there was no kind of like... You go through two years of training, you go through five years of training, there was none of the kind of the rabbi grabs you and says, will you be my, there was none of that. You were either a priest and a Levite or you weren't. That was kind of how it went. So there was no way in, you were in or you were not in. That was it. And what's happened over centuries is there's there's been this kind of received and conventional wisdom that the reason that the priest and the Levite walked past was because of some kind of ancient Jewish purity law. Have you heard that taught before? Have you heard that said? That they couldn't go near the body because if they touched a corpse, they wouldn't be able to serve in the temple and it would have meant they were ritually unclean and they wouldn't have been able to do anything after that. And that's why, because of their ritual observance of Jewish law, they had to walk past. Has anyone, that, that's been, you've heard that taught before, right? Me too, I've preached that before. Like I say, these books blew my mind. Made me quite apologetic in some senses. But there's a problem with that theory. And, and I think it's important that as we learn more and discover more about history, we, we go back and we look at some of the things we've been taught. Because there is a real problem. In fact, I think there's about five problems with that understanding of this story. 
Um, the first is this. They weren't going to Jerusalem to the temple. The story starts with a man walking from, Jericho, uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he's leaving Jerusalem. We're told the priest was going down. You can't go down to Jerusalem physically or metaphorically. You can only go up. So only one way to Jerusalem, up. So when Jesus says, priest, down, he is letting the audience know that the priest is not going to the temple, the priest is leaving. So that's one challenge to that theory, that perhaps there was this issue around ritual impurity. The second one's this. Levites weren't actually disbarred from touching corpses in the law. That's just sort of been added on. We've sort of just gone, oh, priests and Levites couldn't touch corpses. But it's not true. Priests couldn't. A priest couldn't touch a corpse. They would have been ritually unclean. But a Levite couldn't. There was no, nothing in their code that said they couldn't touch a corpse. So that's the second problem with the theory, that, that there's perhaps this kind of ritual impurity thing going on. Um, the third is that burying a corpse is incredibly important in that law. Neglected corpses are not a thing in that law or in Jewish culture. You don't neglect a corpse. It is your responsibility as a Jew to care for and bury and tend the corpse appropriately. So the idea that they would have neglected a corpse is also shaky historically. Fourthly, there's this. The guy's not dead. It's not a corpse. <laughs> there's no corpse in this story. <laughs> there's just a guy in a ditch. And in fact, tending to an injured man is incredibly important. In fact, the fifth reason is this. Saving a life is one of the most important things in that Jewish law. Do you know that saving a life trumps keeping the Sabbath? Saving a life is more important than keeping the Sabbath. And so somehow over time, we've kind of just accepted this wisdom. And look, there are smarter people than me who will tell you they couldn't do it because of corpse purity, whatever. That's cool. But what I'm telling you is, maybe it's not that way. And maybe over time, we've, this has been added in for lots of reasons. Maybe it's been added in because it's convenient, right? It makes the story a bit cleaner if we can go, well, we know why they didn't do it. It was because of the Old Testament thing. And then the Samaritan comes along, and you know, he, they're great, and Jesus tells you that, so we know what Jesus is doing. Maybe it's just a convenience. I, I want to tell you, church, I wonder sometimes if some of it's a bit darker than that. I think we have to really watch out for anti-Semitism. I think we have to really watch out that we don't absolutely betray our Jewish brothers and sisters when we allow that kind of creeping anti-Semitism to come into our church and our theology. It's really important. We've, we've got to be absolutely clear that when we are talking about Jewish culture and heritage and tradition, that we talk with that with the respect and love that Jesus would have. A Jewish rabbi. I think anti-Semitism has played a part in that. I think we've allowed some stuff to creep in that, that maybe isn't quite of the, of the way we need it to be and the way Jesus would have wanted it to be. But it's convenient, so we've, we've kind of allowed it to happen. So... If you're a first century listener and you've got no let off for these guys, you can't go, well, it's because of the corpse purity thing, because that's perhaps not a thing. You have to ask, why didn't they cross the road? Why didn't they go and help the guy? Why didn't they stop and try and deal with whatever that was? Martin Luther King Jr., the day before he was assassinated, gave a famous speech. It's become known as the I've been to the mountaintop. And in it, he actually addresses this very, very question, the very same question. He said this, You know, we use our imagination a great deal to try and determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. At times, we say they were busy going to a church meeting, an ecclesiastical gathering, and they had to go on down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late. At other times, we would speculate that there was a religious law that one who engaged in religious ceremonials was not to touch a human body 24 hours before the sermon 
the ceremony. And every now and then we begin to wonder whether maybe they were not going down to Jerusalem or down to Jericho, rather to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. That's a possibility. Maybe they felt it was better to deal with the problem from the casual route rather than to get bogged down with an individual effect. Dr. King continues. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the Bloody Pass. And you know, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking, and he was acting like he'd been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there. Lure them in quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked, was if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by and reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? You see, when the priest and Levite stopped being some caricature of purity and law, when they stopped taking on this otherly characteristic, when they stopped being this idea and instead just become two people walking down a road and they get scared, then I can place myself in the story in a whole new way. Because I know what it's like to be afraid to go further. I don't want to be naive this morning. The, the fear was real. The road, I've got a picture of this road, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's 18 miles long. It starts at 2,500 feet above sea level. It ends up at about 800 feet below sea level. It's dangerous. It's rocky. There's lots of places for people to hide. Uh, Dr. King actually talks about him and his wife driving the road and him realizing in that moment, ah, that's why Jesus chose this road as the story. It's a dangerous road. The fear was real. Let's not forget, there is either a dead or very seriously injured man who's been attacked or a bandit pretending to have been attacked ready to attack them. So the fear is real. But what if it's the fear that stops them going further? What if it's nothing but good old-fashioned human selfish fear? Well, then I find a whole new place in this story for me because I know exactly what that feels like. I know what it's like to be afraid to go there in case someone gets the wrong idea, to, to say that in case someone thinks I'm that, to support that in case someone decides that everything else I say is worthless to stand up for that person, to embrace that person, to go after that community. I know what that feels like to be afraid, but the only thing stopping me is fear. Good old-fashioned, what will happen to me if? The Samaritan says, what will happen to them if I don't? You see, I think fear wants to stop us going further. So what are you afraid of this morning? The Samaritans become the center of this story. That's why it's known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. I always have to remind myself, Jesus didn't start with the title. I know it's where, the, it's where our Bibles can sometimes be unhelpful because they put the little subtitles in, but Jesus didn't, he didn't kick off with that. Like, he didn't sit down and go to everyone, good morning, everyone, I'm going to tell you the parable of the Good Samaritan. A, half the people would have left, and also, it's the punchline. So you don't start by telling someone the punchline. Michael McIntyre doesn't walk up and go, man drawer, and then everyone just laughs, and then they all go home having spent 85 quid on a ticket. Okay, you don't do it that way. Amy Jill Levine, in her book, she talks about the rule of three of, of rabbinical storytelling, of how rabbis told stories. And she says that, that the, the audience, the people listening, those willing to be taught, 
would have had an expectation of how it went. So let me give you an example. If I was to say, uh, I'm going to tell you a joke. Uh, an Englishman, a Scotsman, and you would assume I'm about to say, yes, yeah, shame on you all. <laughs> shame on every single one of you. But that's the expectation, right? And in this story, that's what the, the audience would have expected. They're thinking uh, a priest, a Levite, and then an Israelite, them. They were meant to be the third part of the story. And they knew the story was going to go like this. The priest walks by, uh, the Levite walks by, uh, but the Israelite, he saves the man. Go and be like that guy. That was what the expectation of the story was. Jesus would tell a joke like this, uh, an Englishman, a Scotsman, and a lampshade. And everyone would go, what? What's the lampshade doing in the story? I was expecting an Irishman to do something stupid and daft, right? Shame on you. Shame on you all. Except it's not random like a lampshade because a Samaritan is specifically chosen because the Samaritan are the enemy. They are hated. Modern parallels fail us, but think in my homeland, Protestants and Catholics, for decades, please God, let's not go back. Decades. Or warring gangs in LA. That hatred was like bloodline hatred. It was hatred. So when Jesus says that there's a priest and there's a Levite and then there's a Samaritan, not only is it not what they expected, no one wants a Samaritan in this story. It would have been revulsion. Like, why are you telling a story about someone I hit? And then Jesus goes one step further because then he makes the hated Samaritan the hero of the story. The hated Samaritan. Not only has he insulted them by bringing this guy into the tale, now this guy is better than the priest and the Levite? Jesus, you couldn't have told a story about someone like us? Nice, nice Israelite, just out for a walk, see someone helps them. The Samaritan appears. And Jesus says the Samaritan does all these things. He heals and binds and puts him on his animal and takes him to an inn and offers to pay even more. And I've got to tell you, we lose the revulsion and the scandal of the story because we try to read it backwards. And we've got to be scandalized by these stories. We're not going to go further in our comfort. Our comfort will make us comfortable. <laughs> we will be comfortable in a room of this size with people like us who sit and sing and stand and clap and sit down and do everything we do. We will be comfortable and we will go no further in our comfort. Scandal will take us further. Comfort will leave us here. This series isn't called here. It's not called staying still. It's not called well done, Skylark, and I just maintain. It'd be too big to get on the screen anyway. Too many words. They're better than that. Further, the next bit, and scandal, the scandalous nature of Christ, from the cross right down to his birth, through his stories, through his actions, through the scandalous people he hung out with, to the scandalous things he did, to the scandalous women he allowed near him, to the scandalous people he went and had tea with, to the scandalous Samaritans he said, this is the hero of my story. That's what pushes people further. Church, if we want to go further, we've got to be scandalized by this story. And we've got to be scandalized by the fact that this is a Samaritan that Jesus is bringing into this tale. You see, in those days, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. If you were a Samaritan, that was it. Samaritan, that's the label. And you wore it. And when people looked at you or they knew you or they knew who they were, you were a Samaritan. You are not one of us. We are not friends. You are my enemy. There is no good can come from you. Friends, this morning, I wonder if we're so busy trying to make ourselves the hero Samaritan, we haven't realized what it was like to be a Samaritan in this story. I wonder how many of our labels are weighing us down this morning. I've preached about it before. My past is too bad. My 
sin is too big, my failure too great. Let's go further this morning. My divorce hurt too much. I cheated on my wife. I've been in prison. I'm addicted. Drugs, sex, pornography, money, alcohol. What label is weighing you down this morning? What label can you not put good in front of to go further with Jesus this morning? You see, there is no such thing as a good Samaritan. But Jesus flips that script. And this morning, he wants to take the labels that have been put on you or you're putting on yourself and saying, I call it good. Right from Genesis, it's good. It's good. It's good. Jesus looks at your label and he says, give it to me. Bring that over here. Bring the, what is that? What was that one? Yeah, I call that good. I call that good this morning. Church, let's not be a group of people who sit here labeled and think, if only I didn't have this label on my life, I would be able to be so good. God calls you good already. Because he takes a villain Samaritan and turns him into a hero of a story that scandalized a group of people. Our labels are good this morning. He wants to take and redeem and send us further. But we won't do that if you're weighed down by labels. So what's weighing you down this morning? And then, and then we'd have had a problem. Because you, um, you see, there's this problem for the first century audience, which is that if being a priest or Levite is inherited, and if being a Samaritan is hated, well, then you might have struggled to imagine being either. So in the first century, you might have had this problem of going, well, where do I fit? Why am I not in this story, Jesus? Maybe like a five-year-old at bedtime, you'd have been going, yeah, sorry, Jesus, can you put me in it? I, I don't know where I fit in this story anymore. And maybe you're feeling that way this morning. You're going, well, well Matt, that's cool, but I'm not really afraid of anything. I'm up for stuff. I know God is good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go after stuff. I'm not afraid. I put my fear to one side. Maybe you're sitting there this morning going, no, no, I've resolved my labels. I know who I am. I've made peace with all of that. I know I'm redeemed. So, so where do I fit? Well, there's one more character in the story that I think Jesus gives us. One more character that I think we often leave behind. If you go back to Luke, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. You see, we call this story the parable of the Good Samaritan. But what if it's the story of someone in a ditch who needed help to get out? Anyone put themselves in that place this morning? You see, we use the, the start of the story, we use this man like some sort of prop, like a visual aid. Guy walks down the road, gets beaten up, lies in a ditch, and then he sort of just becomes, you know, if you were casting a short film, you might just put a dummy in. It's like he doesn't have anything to offer the story. Let's just leave him there. Just put a dummy in place. And that's what we've done to the story in our telling of it. We've put a dummy in. We've forgotten there's a man in a ditch. We've become obsessed with priests and Levites and purity laws and Samaritans and donkeys and innkeepers and how much is a denarii again? And all that stuff. And we've forgotten there's a man in a ditch needing help to get out. What if the man in the ditch is the center of the story? What does it look like if the place we find ourselves is the ditch. You see, there's absolute truth in the fact that for many of the people listening, 
They would rather have died in a ditch than been saved by a Samaritan. Does that, does that freak you out like it freaks me out? <laughs> there are people who would rather die in a ditch than be saved by someone like that. Like, that's a scary thought to me. It's a very real thought for the listeners of the first story. That actually, if they'd have woken up in that inn and gone, how did I get here? And the innkeeper had gone, oh, this lovely Samaritan fellow brought you in. <laughs> they'd have been like, take me back, leave me in the ditch. I should have died there. You see, if it's not our fear that's stopping us across the road, and it's not our labels that are stopping us going further, I wonder if perhaps the biggest challenge of this story is to our pride. I wonder if the biggest challenge that Jesus presents that audience is to ask them, are you too proud to accept help from one you don't think has the right to help you? What if it's not a parable of a good Samaritan? but a parable of a proud man in a ditch who needed help and didn't want it from them. St. Augustine said, God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. I think the good saint would allow me to paraphrase this morning. God is always trying to bring great people to us, but our hearts are too proud to receive them. What if the story of the Good Samaritan is not of purity, not of enemy, but of simple pride of someone in a ditch who needed help, but not from people like that? I wonder if that's where you fit in the story this morning. In this story, the help comes in an unwanted package, but church, we get so caught up in packaging. We get so caught up in who they are or what they've done or how we would define them. Jesus says no to all of that. I'm so proud to belong to a church that wants to make room for everyone. I really am. I'm so proud to belong to that church. But I hope that doesn't stop with an expectation that we save a few seats. I hope it doesn't stop with the idea that we invite people to the odd cafe church or try and get them onto a course or just get them in here. I hope it doesn't stop with the idea that we get out there, hit the streets, get some prayers said, save the world for Jesus. In the Salvation Army, we used to say, storm the forts of darkness. They have a song and everything with it. Let's get out there. Let's do it. Let's be a good Samaritan. Let's go after those people. Let's save everyone. What if our openness has to extend instead of to reaching out to our community, allowing communities to reach into us? What if it looks like communities or people we've written off as enemy, reaching in and being the people who might save us, who might have the, the oil, the bandages, the help, the resource we need? to go further? What if we're in a ditch desperately praying that someone like that doesn't turn up? Church, I hope our pride won't stop us going further. Because Jesus says, the Samaritan saves and the man just has to deal with it. And so we take another look at the story. 
And over the past year or so, I've found incredible ways to put my five-year-old boy into these tales. And every night he goes, Daddy, can I be in this story? So where are you in this story this morning? As we take another look at the Good Samaritan, you're going to struggle to even call it that anymore, aren't you? Like I do, I really struggle to say those words. As we look at the story of the guy in the ditch with the Samaritan who was hated, who comes along, and the priest and Levite who weren't caught up in purity, it's too long. I understand, it has to be something. The parable of the Good Samaritan will do. As we take another look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, where are you in the story this morning? Are we like the priest and the Levite trapped by fear? Too scared to go further because of personal safety, reputation, what will happen to me? Are we trapped in fear that wants to stop us going further? Or maybe we're like the Samaritan bound by that label. Too bad, too hurt, too damaged to be of any use. Church, can I say this? If that label that you're carrying needs real help, do you know there's no shame in getting that real help? We have a prayer team. They're going to be here at the end. We have deeper prayer, which I absolutely would suggest people go for. But I also want you to know there is no shame in going to see the doctor. There is no shame in sitting down with a counselor, a therapist, a psychologist. There is no shame in any of that. We should be grateful that we live in a time when those things are so freely available to us. There is no shame in those things. So if that's what you need to do this week, if that label is weighing you down and you need professional help, you need to go and get that. Please be released from anything that would tell you that brings shame because it does not. That is what we should be doing. Church, that is what we are encouraging. Go and get the help you need this week. Allow that label to be taken off because you do the deep, real, professional, and the Holy Spirit work too. But go and get that real help this week. Don't let that label weigh you down if it doesn't have to, because it doesn't have to. You say label, Jesus says good. That's how it works. So don't allow that label to weigh you down. Or maybe it's our pride. Maybe we just decided that people like that don't have a place here. People like that don't get to serve me. People like that don't get to lead. People like that don't get to take part. Let's not be people whose pride stops them receiving the glorious and wonderful help that Jesus talked about and that God wants for us. Church, if we want to get up and go further, it might be a very unexpected group of people that takes us there. Wouldn't that be scandalous and wonderful? (laughs) Wouldn't it be wonderful? if a completely unexpected group of people took us to the next stage of our life as a church and community in this city, wouldn't that be the kingdom? Thy kingdom come, that's what the kingdom looks like. It looks scandalous and messy and like people you don't think are going to be there. Wouldn't that be an amazing way for this church to go further? May we never be too afraid of the consequences, too weighed down by the labels, or too bound up in our pride to allow the scandalous love of the God of the kingdom of heaven come and invade and send us further. Further is calling. So what's stopping us? Will you stand with me? Our prayer team will be around at the end. If there are things that have been spoken about that you want to talk about, if things have been a trigger for you, if there are things you want to discuss or be prayed for, please come and do that. I'm going to pray for us and and then we're done for this morning. So... Father God, we, we take this moment to open our hearts before you. Friends, why don't we hold out our hands like St. Augustine talked about?
Our God wants to give us good things, but our hands are too full to receive them. So why don't we empty our hands this morning? Let's watch our fears drop away. Let's watch those labels disappear. Father God, freedom from those labels that want to bind us up this morning. Holy Spirit, will you come and release people here right, here right now? We don't need a band. We don't need a light show. We just need your Holy Spirit. Our Trinity God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit want to release you this morning. Jesus' stories want to push you further. Father God, those labels, let them fall right here, right now. Let's empty our hands of our pride. Of our bias. Of our prejudice. Of our absolute insistence that that's the way. All pride. All pride. Father God, may our hands never be too full to receive your goodness. And may our hearts never be too proud to receive the good people you want to send our way because you call them good. And we don't get to do anything different to that, God. You call them good. Father God, you call us good. So Father God, we banish fear. We banish those labels and we banish pride in this room this morning. And we thank you that through your incredible storytelling, through your scandalous characters, through the fact you just walked into these places and you said there is another way and it is further than you can even imagine. Father God, will you push us further by who you are and in your way and in your time and towards your kingdom that might not look anything like we imagine it to. Praise God it doesn't. So, Father God, we empty our hands of all that would stop us receiving, and we empty our hearts of all that would stop us accepting. And we thank you that in this story, the hero is an unexpected, unwanted, unwelcome guest, because that's what your kingdom looks like. Heavenly Father, hear and answer our prayer, because we pray it through the name of your Son, Jesus, who scandalizes us further every time we hear more about him. So bless us, God, we pray, as we step out into a world further, further for you alone. Amen.